For those who are here for the first time today, welcome. It's great to have you all here. Um, I've been preaching an unusual series. Normally, I would go through a book of the Bible, but I'm in the final stage of my doctoral studies, so I have to do a, um, like, what's it called? It's like, not a seminar, but a, a preaching project. So I have to do my dissertation in sermons, because it's a demon in preaching. So, because of that, my series here is this doctoral series, and it's on the mission of the church. So, the mission of the church, and then that's the technical title, and then the, uh, the, the slang title would be wokeness. And what this is, is taking the key passages of scriptures, which are used by the evangelical left to advance leftist agendas, but they're misinterpreted and misapplied. So, I thought, well, let's do sermons on eight of the most common ones, or eight of the ones that are really pressing these days, and just preach a sermon on it and say, hey, this is what this actually means. So, that's why we started, number one, with love your neighbor, because that's being tossed around quite a bit these days. And then we jumped into the minor prophets, because, you know, Amos, let justice roll down like a river. Uh, Micah 6, 8, this is the great commandment to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Then we jumped over into the New Testament, Matthew 25, the least of these, that was last week. Then today we're looking at the Great Commission, um, because the, spoiler alert here, but the thesis of my thesis is that the Great Commission is the mission of the church. So I believe that there are a variety of things that can occupy time and attention, but the Great Commission is the thing that we have been called to as a church. So we're now here really in the middle of the series, then the next two weeks will be in the book of Luke, and then I think we jump over to Revelation. And then that'll be that, and we'll get back on to Romans. So welcome to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It might surprise you to find that today's sermon is divided into four points, not three. Those four are, number one, all authority, number two, all nations, number three, all scripture, number four, all present. So those words are authority, nations, scripture, present. All authority, all nations, all scripture, and all present. The mission of the church has been the overarching theme of this project, and I argue that the mission of the church is nothing less than and nothing more than the Great Commission. I had a conversation with an atheist philosophy professor from the University of South Florida, and my project came up because she saw me typing in what looked like academic formatting, you know, Turabian. As we talked, I asked her what she thought the mission of the church should be, given that she's an atheist philosophy professor from the University of Florida, South Florida. And she looked confused and said, um, to tell other people about Jesus? Her facial expression showed that she thought this might be a trick question. But we understand this is actually the subject of much debate. A Catholic professor named Matthew Schmalz of the, Cross of the, Ho- the College of the Holy Cross said, 
a majority of church-going American Christians are unfamiliar with the term the Great Commission, a 2019 survey found. Even among those familiar with it, 25% recognized the phrase but could not explain what it was. Only 17% were familiar with the phrase and its meaning. So what exactly is the Great Commission and why is it a controversial idea for some? He continues, the Great Commission, therefore, is usually interpreted to mean spreading the Christian message and converting others to Christianity. Now, the Gospel of Matthew does not specifically use the term Great Commission. In fact, the phrase Great Commission does not appear until late in Christian history. Some scholars argue that it was coined by Baron Justinian von Welts, a 17th century Lutheran nobleman, who argued that the words of Matthew 28 meant that all Christians were required to spread the faith, not just Jesus' closest disciples. See, there's actually quite a bit of debate about that in church history. There were people like uh, William Carey, the father of modern missions, who, when he was trying to get the evangelical church in Great Britain moving in the 1800s, they all said, well, one thing they said was, if God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without you. They had convinced themselves and each other that God gave this commission to the apostles and it would be wrong for us to go to try to convert the nations. William Carey continued on anyway. One of his friends, Andrew Fuller, helped develop the theology behind it, which would be later called Fullerism, which um, Charles Spurgeon and others were kind of famous followers of, which would be a Reformed Baptist who is not a hyper-Calvinist. That's all extra. Anyway, the father of modern missions, William Carey, was able to get this movement going, but there was this debate in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Christian missionary activities, the author continues, these activities predate the use of the term the Great Commission. The Apostle Paul was influential in establishing Christian churches throughout the Mediterranean region after the death of Jesus. Much later, Catholic religious orders such as the Society of Jesus attempted to spread Christianity throughout the world, usually with the help of powerful nations like Portugal and Spain. The Great Commission certainly motivated Protestant efforts to convert nations and peoples in Africa and Asia in the 19th century. It also fueled more recent efforts by evangelical Christians to missionize Catholic Latin America. Indeed, Latin America would not have become so Catholic without indigenous peoples being dominated by European imperialism and colonialism. Missionary efforts sometimes served economic interests relating to trade and resources as well as religious ones. Additionally, converting conquered peoples was a powerful way of extending political control. Converting others to Christianity raises a fundamental question about whether religious diversity is a reality to be celebrated or an obstacle to be overcome. Given the complex history of missionary activity, the meaning of the Great Commission will continue to be a subject of debate as Christianity confronts a rapidly changing world. Close quote. So, here we are. Point number one. All authority. All authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. It's worth noting that before he said that, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them. He wasn't with them in that moment, but he walked up to them. He came up to them, and then he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. D.A. Carson helpfully observes all dominates verses 18 through 20 and ties these verses together. 
all authority, all nations, all things, and all the days. This is why my four points of the message are all authority, all nations, all scripture, and all present. All authority, the word all, has a history of contentious interpretation among Christians, but the words that follow make it clear that there is no limit to this authority that Jesus is now wielding. He is wielding all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I would ask you, on what grounds do you make disciples? On what grounds do you go and tell other people the message of Jesus? It's on the grounds of the authority of Jesus. On what grounds do you go to the ends of the earth? Why are you here? Why are you going? That's because the one who has supreme authority told us to. When Marxists call your efforts to evangelize an act of white supremacist colonialism, you must remember that Jesus is the one who sent you, and it is under his name and under his authority that you go. Carson continues, The Son becomes the one through whom all of God's authority is mediated. He is, as it were, the mediatorial king. This well-defined exercise of authority is given Jesus as the climactic vindication of his humiliation, which we talked about last week. Remember his humility in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He comes to the earth, he humbles himself, but then he is exalted. It also marks the turning point in redemptive history The Messiah's kingdom, i.e. his king dominion. Did you know that's what kingdom is about? His king dominion? The exercise of his divine authority. This has dawned in new power. This is yet clearer if we accept the view that there is a conscious and intentional allusion here to Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which we also referenced last week concerning Matthew 25. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is this vision of the Son of Man coming in authority. And I explained that the Son of Man term is not referring to his humanity, but his deity. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he, Jesus, the Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Carson continues. I think this is Carson. This should make it clear that Jesus has authority over all the nations right now in the present. This is not reserved for some future eschatological state, but the present reign of Christ. Without a doubt, there is more to come when he returns and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, but that dominion has already begun. See the words, all authority has been given. Not all authority will be or shall be, but all authority has been given. This is a finished thing for us today. I'm about to read a lengthy quote from John Calvin. Calvin said, With reference to the words, and Jesus approached and spoke to them. Jesus' approach unquestionably removed all hesitation. Before relating to the office of teaching, 
Before relating that the office of teaching was committed to the disciples, Matthew saw, saw or says that Christ began by speaking of his power. And not without reason. For no ordinary authority would here have been enough. But sovereign and truly divine government ought to be possessed by him who commands them to promise eternal life in his name. To reduce the whole world under his sway and to publish a doctrine which subdues all pride and lays low the whole of the human race. And by this preface, Christ not only encouraged the apostles to full confidence in the discharge of their office, but he confirmed that faith of his gospel in all the ages. So even today, never certainly would the apostles have had sufficient confidence to undertake so difficult a task if they had not known that their protector sits in heaven and that the highest authority is given to him. For without such a support, it would have been impossible for them to make any progress. But when they learned that he to whom they owe their service is the governor of heaven and earth, this alone was abundantly sufficient for preparing them to rise above all opposition. As regards the hearers, if the contemptible appearance of those who preach the gospel weakens or retards their faith, let them learn to raise their eyes to the master himself by whose power the majesty of the gospel ought to be estimated. And then they will not venture to despise him when speaking by his ministers. He expressly calls himself the Lord and King of heaven and earth, because by constraining men to obey him in the preaching of the gospel, he establishes his throne on the earth. It's by the preaching of the gospel that churches are established. That is the way in which his throne throne and his authority on the earth is established. As important as politics or elections may be, that's not what spreads the kingdom of God. They might attempt to stop the spread of the kingdom of God, but that doesn't establish the kingdom of God. You can have a Christian president, Christian ruler, Christian governor, Christian mayor, Christian senators and congressmen and women, and city council persons, But if you don't have biblical preaching in local churches, the kingdom of God is not in that place. The quote continues. And by regenerating his people to a new life and inviting them to the hope of salvation, he opens heaven to admit to a blessed immortality with the angels, those who formerly had not only crawled on the world, but had been plunged in the abyss of death. Yet let us remember that when Christ possessed in his own right, that what Christ possessed in his own right was given to him by the Father in our flesh, or to express it more clearly in the person of the mediator. For he does not lay claim to the eternal power with which he has endured before the creation of the world, but to that which he has now received by being appointed to be the judge of the world. Nay, more, it ought to be remarked that this authority was not fully known until he rose from the dead. For then only did he come forth adorned with the emblems of supreme king. To this also relates those words of Paul. He emptied himself. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And though in other passages, the sitting at the right hand of God is placed after the ascension to heaven as later in the order of time, yet as the resurrection and the ascension to heaven are closely connected with each other, with good reason does Christ now speak of his power 
in such magnificent terms. Close quote. That's number one, all authority. All authority has been given to Jesus. Number two, all nations. Verse 19. Look at your Bibles. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As uninteresting as it might be to talk about English grammar, it is necessary to talk about English grammar for the sake of this verse and your awareness. It has been observed that the word go is actually a participle. It's not really an imperative, but it's a participle, and it's a participle that acts like an imperative. It would be translated while you are going. It's sort of like a contingent circumstance. It's a thing that happens while something else is happening, while you're supposed to be doing something else. Carson, again, has some helpful comments on this provided in the footnotes, which I will read. In the Greek, the word go, like the word baptizing and teaching, all three of these are participles. The only verb, the only imperative, the only command is to make disciples. Some have deduced from this that Jesus' commission is simply to make disciples as you go, wherever you are, and constitutes no basis for going somewhere special in order to serve as a missionary. There is something to this view, but it needs three careful qualifications. Those are the following. Number one, when a participle functions as a circumstantial participle dependent on an imperative, so that imperative to make disciples, the command, make disciples, when this participle, which is connected to that, is occurring here in this context, it normally gains some imperatival force. In other words, it gains the force of a command. Number two, while it remains true to say that the main imperatival force rests on the words, make disciples, in other words, the main command is make disciples. That's true. Not on the word go. In a context that demands that his ministry extends to all nations, it is difficult to believe that the word go has lost all imperatival force. In other words, how could you go, how could you make disciples of all nations if the word go is not in part a command? And then number three, from the perspective of mission strategy, it is important to remember that the Great Commission is preserved in several complementary forms in Scripture, and taken together, they can only be circumvented by considerable exegetical ingenuity. In other words, that's a really creative way to read your Bible. I would have never thought of that by reading the Bible. I would have had to study and go to seminary and read some non-Christian theologian in order to come to the conclusion that I should not take the gospel to all nations. Before that brief excursus, that was the close quote. So Carson has some helpful comments provided in the footnotes, which we just read. From them, we see that this technicality may not be all that helpful. It's not all that helpful to say, oh, hey, this is a participle. Like, it's irrelevant that this is a participle. The word go means go. 
But it's good for you to know that in case you encounter someone who says, actually, it's a participle and you shouldn't be doing this. It is impossible to make disciples of all nations without actually going anywhere. If Christians take no steps to propagate the gospel to all the corners of the earth, the people in unreached lands will not hear of Christ and will not be saved. Practically speaking, for those of you who are part of the church or those who want to or else ever see again, I want you to know the term unreached people group. And I also want you to know that that is the acronym for that is UPG, unreached people group. I also want you to know the term unreached, unengaged people group. Those are not single people who have never heard the gospel. Those are people who have not only never heard the gospel, but there's nobody around them that could possibly tell them the gospel. This is an area in which no one has ever taken the gospel before in the history of the world. And believe it or not, there still are places like that on the planet. As some missiologists say, the unreached places are unreached because they're hard. They're still unreached because it's very, very difficult to go to those places and reach those people. Because what you find when you get there is not a bunch of innocent people seeking after God. It's a bunch of people who know about God and have rejected him. They hate God. Listen to Paris Reedhead's sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt, if you want a really soul-stirring sermon on this. The people in unreached lands will not hear of Christ and will not be saved if they do not hear. Remember the Apostle Paul's famous words from Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? The words to all nations must be addressed as well. A student of missiology will not be long in his classes before he hears the following terms bantered about like a volleyball, which is terms like pante ethne, all nations. Ethne, nations, is the regular Greek Greek term for Gentiles and has been argued that this command therefore actually excludes the Jews from the scope of the disciples' mission. Okay, this is sent to the Gentiles, therefore you must not take the gospel to the Jews. That is a ridiculous conclusion. That is not a biblically sound or theologically faithful conclusion to come to. But actually, this is to send the disciples to the Gentiles, meaning to extend the range of their mission beyond where they already are. And it does not need to imply a cessation of their mission to Israel, which has already been commanded and now can be taken for granted. Of course, we're going to the Jews. It started with the Jews. Now it's going to the Gentiles. It's going further than it was before. Moreover, the phrase panta ta ethne, all the nations, has been previously used in Matthew 24, 9, verse 14, Matthew 25, 32, in contexts which probably includes Israel in the nations. And surely there can be no suggestion in Daniel 7, 14 of the exclusion of Israel from the dominion of the Son of Man. In other words, if Jesus has dominion over all the earth, how would he not have dominion over Israel since he himself represents Israel? Keener observes making disciples was the sort of thing that rabbis would do, but Jesus' followers are to make disciples for Jesus, not for themselves. They're to make followers of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. I kind of neglected to define that, but when we say make disciples, it means to make learners and followers. People who follow Jesus. 
We also need to look at the words baptizing them here in this verse, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These words clearly follow the words make disciples or teaching. For those who are Presbyterians in the room, you have my sympathy. The idea of baptizing someone who is not a disciple is absolutely foreign to the scriptures. We must baptize, but we must not baptize those who we know to be unconverted. Or putting it in a positive way, we must baptize those in whom we see credible evidence of conversion. Now, this is the closest and most obvious spot in this whole sermon to put the offer out to you and to say, would you like to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Would you like to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus? And if you're not, why not? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from taking that step? What's keeping you from trusting in Jesus, from turning from your sin and yourself and your righteousness and your evil, all the things that you have, to to go from trusting in yourself to trusting in Jesus for your salvation. What's holding you back? The message of the gospel is that Christ came into the world. He was incarnate. He took on flesh. That's what Christmas is all about. He comes into the world, takes on flesh, lives a true human life. And in his true human life, in his humanity, he lives a sinless life. He never gave up his deity. He retained it, but he added to his deity humanity. And so he walks on this earth as a sinless man, the God-man. And he obeyed the law of God and the power of the Spirit. Then he went to the cross and he was crucified on that Roman cross as a common criminal, but there was something else taking place on that cross. And that was that the Lord, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father placed the sins of his people on his son and then punished his son in the place of his people. And so that's how a sinner can be reconciled to God. It's by trusting in him and his life, death. And then on the third day, he rose again. So you're trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for your forgiveness of sins, for your salvation. That's the way you can be reconciled to God. That's what we mean when we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. If you would like to become a disciple, a disciple is a Christian and a Christian is a disciple. There's not someone who is a Christian, but is not following Jesus. A person who is a chronic non-follower of Jesus, but claims to be a Christian is what we would call a false convert. Someone who says, I don't love Jesus. I don't like his word. I don't like his people. I hate church. This whole thing is stupid and boring and irrelevant. I don't love God. I don't have any sort of distance between me and the world. In fact, I love the world. I love sin. I hate the church. I hate the Bible. I hate all the things that First John says, now I will love if I am in Christ. So I would encourage you, if you do not know Christ, to trust in him, to be born again today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now, we also must address Trinitarianism. We see in our text, baptizing them in the name singular of the following three things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have a singular and plural. We have the unity and diversity. We have the Father, Son and Spirit, three persons with one name. 
The concept of the Trinity was not invented in the third century. It is a biblical concept that is found clear from Genesis to Revelation. The Son is divine, the Spirit is divine, and obviously the Father is divine. These three are in perfect unity and harmony with each other. In their ontology, in their essence, they are perfect equals. But in their function, there are different roles. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. The Son is sent by the Father. The Son comes into the world. The Son dies on the cross for your sins. He's the one who rises from the dead on the third day. The Father didn't die on the cross. We don't believe in patripassianism or whatever it's called, where they believe that the Father died. No, the Father didn't die. The Son died. The Son rose. And then the Spirit is the one who comes and indwells us. We believe in the Trinity. And if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. You're believing some other religion, some sort of cult or something. So when we tell you, you must be born again, you must believe on the name of Jesus, we're talking about this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the one who is equal with the Father in every essential characteristic. He's truly God. And in his incarnation, he became truly man and he retained his humanity forever. So today at the right hand of the Father sits the God-man, And he will bear the marks of his death forever. The scars, he keeps them. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father today. So we have all authority, number one. Number two, we have all nations. And then number three, we have all scripture. Verse 20 says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. We we have to see the scope of the instruction It's to the end of the age. This echoes a multitude of other verses that often repeat this promise, which is, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then the Great Commission from Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Carson makes a powerful observation. Matthew's gospel is now in its final verse. Returning to the theme introduced in the very first verse on Matthew 1.1, that the blessings promised to Abraham and through him to all the peoples of the earth in Genesis 12 are now being fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. He also makes a very important and lengthier point, which I have included in the footnotes, and I told myself, read the footnotes, so let's do that. Adherence of the church growth movement have attempted to justify their entire people movement principle on the basis of this phrase used here and elsewhere, arguing that ethnos properly, this is actually kind of a blending of my points, this should have been in point two, all nations. Ethnos properly means tribe or people, most comprehensively, Dr. Goner in his book, All Nations in God's Purpose. The latter point is readily conceded. We would agree with that. But the conclusion is linguistically illegitimate. Plural collectives may have all-embracing force, whether in Greek or English. Doubtless, God may convert people by using a people movement, but to deduce such a principle from this text requiring a city movement principle, based on Acts 8.40, where the same construction occurs with the noun cities, in neither case may missiologists legitimately establish the normativeness of these theories. That's a highly technical 
comment, which I wish James were here for, because he's probably the only one in the room that it really makes sense to, but it is ironic, given our place here in New York City, reading and appreciating a commentary by a guy named D.A. Carson, who started a very large ministry called the Gospel Coalition, which has some 20 to 40 million readers per year. So it is quite ironic, given D.A. Carson's connection with the Gospel Coalition co-founder, Tim Keller, who long ago embraced these very principles, the church growth movement principles. That's that on that thought. Moving on. In case he has not been clear enough, Jesus restates his instructions that the twelve are to teach these newly made disciples to obey all that Jesus has commanded. R.T. France observes, they are to teach not just abstract ideas, but to observe all that I have commanded you. There is thus a strongly ethical emphasis to this summary of Christian mission and discipleship, as there has been in Jesus' teaching throughout the gospel. To make disciples is not complete unless it leads them to a life of observing Jesus' commandments. Now, the Great Commission is more than ethical instruction, but it certainly includes a call to obedience to Christ. Part of that obedience is the obedience to recognize the Great Commission as the mission of the church and to embrace the call to make disciples as our primary focus. The instruction that is given in this point, in point three, is that we are to teach all scripture, all things that Christ has commanded. Remember, we just talked about the Trinity. The word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit are three in one. They are in union and harmony with each other. Thus, it could be accurately said that the Bible is Jesus's Bible. The Bible is Jesus's book. And so when someone comes up to you and says, now, where did Jesus say this or that? You say, well, in Leviticus 27 or or wherever, you can cite a source that's not in red letters and it's still the words and teachings of Jesus because this is his word. It is his Bible. He affirmed it throughout his ministry. He affirmed the legitimacy of the Old Testament scriptures. And we see that the New Testament scriptures are in the same way inspired by God as the Old Testament scriptures. So our responsibility is not simply to make converts, but to make disciples. And along that process also involves teaching them all of Scripture. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean for us? That means we are not doing something wrong if we don't take every single person from the zero-yard line to the hundred-yard line. It's fine to pick someone up at the 45-yard line and take them to the 100-yard line. Our goal is to make disciples. The person doesn't have to come here unconverted. We can't just say, oh, sorry, we're only here to evangelize lost people. No, we're here to make disciples. We make disciples wherever they are on that timeline, wherever they are in this, this knowing all that Christ has commanded. Point four, all present. Jesus says, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see this concept throughout Scripture and throughout the Great Commission passages. Think of Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus draws near to his people by and through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit which proceeds from the Father and the Son. So when Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth, the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. So in conclusion, let's consider the words of Jesus to his disciples the night before his death from John 14 through 16. He says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's why Jesus did all these miracles. These were signs to prove that he was, in fact, the Messiah that was promised. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but as I do, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Skipping down to verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done anything, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, that they hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourself? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, 
and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why I believe, this is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The fourth and final point is that Jesus is promising his presence with us. He says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise from your son that he will be with us. We thank you that he will be with us and he is with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit whom you have sent. Thank you that this spirit is a person, not a mere force or something impersonal. But we can know the spirit of God. We can know his presence and his comfort. I pray that we would go out in the authority of Christ to all the nations, making disciples, teaching, baptizing, and that we would proclaim all the scriptures, that we would teach people all things that Christ has commanded to us. And I pray that we would do this, that we would walk this road in the power and the presence of your spirit, which enables us by grace to follow you, that we are not left alone. We are not saved by grace and left to finish our Christian life by works, but that we are helped by Christ himself through the spirit. I pray that you would take these words and apply them to the hearts of your people, that we would be encouraged and helped. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.